This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, we went over some of these COVID numbers continuing to grow cases-wise here in the United States. We're certainly at a much different place than we were, Creedy, a month ago. And the Biden administration at this point is set to urge COVID-19 booster shots this starting next month. So the U.S. government poised to offer booster shots uh, for people who have received uh, their second shot eight months ago. Joining us now is Michael Dowling, the president and CEO at Northwell Health. Joining us on the phone from Long Island, New York. Uh, Michael Dowling, it is great to have you back on the show. I do want to start with just an idea of what things are like at, at Northwell Health right now. Give us, give us a, well, a view from we're, we're, we're doing well. Um, and obviously, there's a lesson here that you never declare victory too soon. Uh, we have seen an increase in COVID cases. Uh, today, we have uh, 291 COVID patients in our hospitals. And uh, How do, contextualize, ago, contextualize that for us, Michael, from where we were at the height of the pandemic. Before well, that well yeah, that, that, you know, that comparison is important because we're in a much better place. Uh, last April, at the height of the COVID epidemic here, we had 3,500 wow. COVID patients. Okay. So 291... Uh, you know, is relatively minor compared to where we were a year ago. Uh, the numbers are going up slowly, but they are increasing. And we're pretty optimistic um, that uh, we, we're easily able to handle what we have at the moment. And if it increases some more, we're definitely able to handle it. There is no crisis here at all at the moment. Well, Michael, I want to ask you, what, what are you seeing in, uh, in your businesses, in your kind of preparation metrics for what could be a pretty brutal summer as we talk about the Delta variant? What's your take on that? Well, I, as I said, I, we are well prepared. Um, it, uh, right now, it hasn't affected any of our other businesses, so we haven't had to slow down anything else. If the numbers go up a few more hundred, then we obviously have very detailed plans as to how to accommodated with the creation of new bed capacity. We have all of the PPE we need. Uh, we have the plans for staffing. Uh, if we had it to increase ICU beds, we, we know how to do that. We're able to do it. So we're not concerned about our, our ability to handle an increase if it occurs. We're hoping, of course, it doesn't happen. But we are not worried about our potential to be able to do this at all. Based upon our experience over the past 18 months, uh, you know, right now is relatively modest compared to what we had to deal with a year ago. Michael, one of the many reasons we'd like to talk to you is because you oversee the largest health system in right. New York. Uh, you have, at Northwell Health, treated more than 100,000 COVID-19 patients since the start Actually, of the pandemic. Actually, 212,000, by the way. Oh. How many? We've seen over 12,000 wow. COVID patients. Okay, so even more than, than when yeah, we previously spoke. Yeah, both in our ambulatory sites and in our hospitals. Yeah. So, so give us an idea of the people who are hospitalized right now, if you can share. What portion of those people are vaccinated? Uh, uh, over uh, 80% of the people who are in hospitalized right now are not vaccinated. More than 80% of all the people in your hospital system who are hospitalized COVID, COVID, COVID are not vaccinated. Are not vaccinated. And yeah. is there any particular pattern to the people who are vaccinated and hospitalized? Um, 
uh, now there are more the people who are vaccinated and hospitalized are tend to be older they tend to have other compromised issues uh, uh, you know you know people have other other health care concerns um, with the number in the ICUs are relatively small right now it's about 11 percent in total in the ICUs um, and so uh, it's the, the, so the numbers are very easily manageable. But uh, the vaccinated COVID patients tend to be older, and obviously they have other issues, as I just mentioned. Gotcha. Well, Michael, you also mentioned earlier, you said that you're not having trouble with bed capacity right now or PPE. What is kind of, do you have a a plan in place that should we get back to levels we saw last year? Of course, we know in some of the southern states, they're already dealing with a lack of bed capacity, even some hospitals dealing with a limited ICU capacity. What, how do you deal with something like that from your perspective? Well, you, you, you create bed capacity by opening up spaces that are now not occupied. Uh, it could be like what we did the last time. We opened up conference centers. We opened up hallways, et cetera, et cetera. And we curtailed the, 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 uh, the other businesses. We stopped doing other things so we could make other spaces available for COVID patients if the numbers increase. So we have very detailed plans in place for that. Uh, we know uh, what we would have to do if the number went to 400, 600, 800. We have very, very detailed plans, and we're very comfortable. On PPE, uh, we have no issues because we have our own supply chain. We have our own warehouses. I have got plenty of all PPE supplies. I have my own transport network. So what we did the last time is that if one hospital gets overcrowded, we move patients to other hospitals that are less crowded. So we do what we call as we load balance. And um, and we have uh, detailed plans on staffing. Um, uh, we are much better at this now, I believe, than we were uh, a year ago, because a year ago it happened very, very, very quickly. So we have obviously redone all of our plans. Um, and you can create ICU beds. Uh, I always get worried when I hear people saying that they're running out of ICU beds. You can create any, any bed can become an ICU bed if you have a vent. The issue is having vents. Um, and, uh, you know, right now we have plenty of vents. There'd be no problem there at all if we had to increase ICU capacity. So uh, we have a very organized system here. Uh, we've been working on it for years and years and years. And, you know, we were able to manage 3,500 COVID patients a year ago. So whatever happens here, we will be able to manage it. I'm not concerned about it. Let's get right back to Michael Dowling, president and CEO of Northwell Health, joining us on the phone from Long Island, New York. Michael, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the Biden administration. It's uh, set to urge COVID-19 booster shots this starting next month. So the Biden administration officials are finalizing a plan expected to recommend booster shots eight months after people receive their second dose. That's according to two people familiar with the deliberations who asked not to be identified. This being reported earlier this morning by our own Josh Wingrove in Bloomberg News. are you preparing at Northwell Health to provide boosters? Yes, we actually provided some booster shots today. Um, we did uh, we did a number of patients today. Uh, these are immunocompromised patients, uh, cancer patients, and uh, we actually gave boosters today. So yes, we are prepared. I think it's a great idea. Um, and of course, we're starting out with people that have compromised immune systems. But I believe that over the next number of weeks. Uh, It'll be more be made more general to people that got vaccinated 68 months ago, and um, and get an extra booster. I think it's the right thing to do, and, and uh, we're well prepared if that's the policy that is decided. 
Michael, talk to me about that, uh, the anticipation that you just mentioned of that more wide-scale rollout of that third booster shot. Is there a time frame that you have in mind or, or your peers are expecting? Uh, now we're, we're, uh, uh, we started, and so we're, we're ready to, to actually provide the booster shot to those people that come in that require it and need it, and we will be reaching out to patients, you know, cancer patients, people who are immunocompromised in other ways, transplant patients, etc. So we are ready and uh, prepared, and we have the staff, and we have the facility to do it. And today, as I said, was our first day. So we're, 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 uh, we're, we're well organized to do this, and uh, we will be encouraging this. It's the right thing to happen, and uh, it's, it's a good, good public policy. Creedy mentioned kids because there are still millions of kids who are not eligible to be vaccinated. Yes. Here in the United States, it's 12 and up to receive uh, a COVID vaccine. What's right. a realistic time frame that we should be thinking about for kids under the age of 12 to be able to get vaccines? Uh, I, you know, I've talked to some of the experts on this, and they think that we're, we're, we're a number of months away from that, I believe. Um, I mean, the key for people up to the age of 12 at the moment, if they're in public spaces, especially as they go back to school, which I think they obviously should, then I think mask wearing is essential. Um, if you're under 12 and you go back uh, to a congregate facility or in a school situation, then you should wear the mask. Uh, but I, I don't have a definitive date as to when uh, there is, there's still some analysis being done as to when uh, the vaccine would be available for anybody under 12. Well, tell me about this kind of idea of the, the rollout of this vaccine for children in particular, because there is this kind of standing debate that even uh, if they are vaccinated, and let's say they follow the trend that you're seeing in adults here, that even if you're vaccinated, even if you are wearing a mask, you could still get uh, the virus, especially the Delta variant strain of it as well. For kids, how is what is like the proper way to really think about the way that schooling can really continue when there is this possibility that every time a potential kid has the case, you do have to go uh, right back into lockdown or right back into remote learning? How does that affect the schooling approach? What are you hearing from your patients? Well, I, you know, everybody, you know, most patients and uh, family members, uh, you know, I would, you know, I believe desire to have their kids back to school. And I know that the city and all of the other school districts, are, school districts are working right now diligently to make sure that they are prepared to open up safely. And it requires, obviously, some social distancing, obviously required mask wearing, obviously hand washing, and doing all of the other precautionary things that we've all, been talk- we've all talked about for the last 12 months. It's a little bit inconvenient. Uh, but I think that, you know, we have to understand we're still fighting a virus. We're not as in bad a situation here as other states are in. Um, but I think if everybody takes the appropriate precautions, then we will, until we get a vaccine for people under the age of 12, we will obviously be able to limit uh, the, the, the transmission that will occur. Um, you know, you want to eliminate it completely, but you will obviously decrease it dramatically. Help us think to what lo- things look like in the fall, just in the last 30 seconds that we have with you, Michael, yeah. the fall and the winter. How, how much worse are you expecting things to get in, in, in the New York City area, given that we do have a relatively high vaccination rate? I say relatively. Yeah, I mean, I, we're not Vermont or anything, but yeah, I, you know, you know I, uh, we, if I had a crystal ball, it would be wonderful. But yeah. my own personal view is that I don't think it's getting, going to get too bad here um, because we have, very, we have relatively high vaccination rates. If you're not vaccinated, you are in all likelihood going probably going to have a problem. So the, if people get vaccinated and do the right thing, uh, this is a public health issue. Right. You should have responsibility for your right. neighbors and your friends in the community. And if you do right. it, we will be fine. 
Michael Dowling, we got to leave it there. We love it when you join us. You got to come back again soon. President and CEO of Northwell Health. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. SPACs, they have been really hot over the last year and a half, but the SPAC boom is creating fresh targets for short sellers. Joining us now is Scott DeVoe, deals reporter for Bloomberg News. He's with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Also joining us is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week on the remote from Massachusetts. Scott's story that we're going to be talking about is featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. You can read it now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week. Joel, blank check deals help businesses go public faster, but that has investors who hunt for those weak companies getting ready to pounce. Yeah, so that is um, basically what, what Scott said in an email to us not so long ago. And I was like, you know, that's really interesting to me because one of the things that SPACs obviously allow um, companies to do is go public faster and you don't have to go through the whole rigmarole that an IPO uh, might require. And and so the, the idea that um, activists and short sellers might have more targets here was an interesting one. So, so Scott, what did you find out as you were re- reporting on this? Well, I think we're already starting to see the short sellers move into the space, not only just investing in the SPACs themselves, but also in the companies that they're um, taking public. Obviously, one of the biggest ones we saw over the last year was Nikola. It went public through a SPAC and then obviously was targeted by uh, Hindenburg and, you know, erased billions of dollars in value. Um, and so it kind of shows the cycle that we're likely to see increase as we see these hundreds of SPACs out there searching for for deals. Okay, so take a step back and give us exactly, I mean, special purpose acquisition companies, they're shell companies, investors uh, buy into them because they believe that whoever's setting up the SPAC can then go out, take that capital that the investor gave them and find a, a an acquisition target that is a good company, right? Yeah, a, okay. pri- a private private company that they, they're going to take public with the vehicle. Um, and the upside could be really large. I mean, you could, you know, buy your $10 a share and it could be trading at 20 or 30, you know. Um, so there's a potential that you could make a lot of money off of it. Well, talk to us about the last time we've seen the SPAC boom, because we saw it at the beginning of the year. They were going crazy, and then they kind of lost a little bit of momentum. So talk to us historically. When has this happened before? Yeah, I mean, I think the last big cycle was around like 2007, 2009. We saw a bunch of these uh, SPACs kind of go into the market. Um, And then we saw basically what, you know, a lot of people are predicting that will happen now. We saw short sellers. Then we saw activists and activists targeting SPACs. Um, there were all kinds of people that were forcing SPACs to give back the money because they weren't going to find uh, targets in the 24 months or so that they were given to, to find something. Um, so it's a combination of short sellers, uh, shareholder activists. And, you know, it seems like we're moving in that direction now, too, because the, the SPAC market itself is actually slowing. So. So there's kind of a, a cycle to it, which is interesting. And you, you mentioned if, what doesn't happen if if they don't get it something in, in 24 months. Talk to us about the concept of a zombie SPAC. Right. So a zombie SPAC is basically uh, you have typically about 24 months to go find a target. And if you don't, you have to give back the money to your investors. So what happens as you move closer to that that 24 month period, you know, you're probably more likely to to find an activist, move into the stock, and say, "Why don't you just give us this money back? Because you're not you're not going to find anything, um, especially if it's pr- trading at a discount to the ten dollars, because that's a natural, you know, return." 
Not, um, not so long ago, it was like there was a dearth of companies in the public markets. And I'm just wondering from, from everyone that you talked to while you worked on this and, and elsewhere in your reporting, is just, you know, is this back boom generally uh, a, a good thing in everyone's mind? Because, again, we're, we're having more companies go public after uh, what was kind of a drought for a long period of time. So I think it's a kind of a dual-edged sword there because I think the activists are very excited about it because a lot of these specs are going into the market with uh, market valuations between two and ten billion dollars, which is kind of a sweet spot for most activists. So they're getting hundreds of new companies, presumably that'll be entering the market, um, and you know some of them might not have the best governance, some might have regulatory risks or concerns. Uh, senior management teams that aren't used to being public uh, companies and reporting and all that stuff. Um, so that's like that's like candy for activists, you know. But uh, on the flip side, you know, investors are actually getting a, an opportunity to invest in new companies, and these are early stage companies that presumably could have a lot of upside. Scott, I I, I wonder if this time is is different though, and I, I I think about this in the context of conversations that we were having here just a few months ago in the wake of what happened with GameStop and AMC, where short sellers got attacked uh, mm-hmm. by you know Wall Street bets and investors saying, hey, don't short these companies. Is what do you think? Is that going to happen? I, I honestly, I have no idea. I mean, I don't. If anybody was going to predict that GameStop was going to be you know the size <laughs> that it is, you know, five months ago. I would have said but, you were but crazy. But the idea but. that shorting might, you know, shorting serves this purpose, sure. right? And we've, we've, we've talked about this on the show. And there was concern that shorts would go away because they'd be scared about getting attacked like this. I, I don't think uh, the shorts have, are going away. What they're doing is they're monitoring Reddit and all these things in order to make sure that they're ahead of the curve when there is a short attack, uh, you know, from from that, that sect of people in the, in the meme stock thing. And so, you know, Hedge funds are very good at adapting, and I think that these guys are going to adapt as well as anyone. So, so where where do we look for the next SPAC targets here? Is it just the companies that are better battered by the pandemic that don't have a ton of kind of room to run here? Where where do you, where should people be looking? Well, the activists themselves are targeting the SPACs that are in the market right now that they don't have a lot of faith in. Um, so Michael Klein's uh, Churchill is like one of the most heavily shorted. Uh, SPACs in the market right now, um, you know, and then what they're going to do is they're going to go through the, all of these new takeover targets and they're going to see what kind of public companies they are. So when it comes to shareholder activism, not the short selling side of it, it's going to take about 12 to 24 months to, to work itself out because they have to a get the liquidity from, you know, the insiders being able to sell their shares after a lockup period. Plus, you know they're going to see how they're going to perform in the public markets, and if if there is an underperformance, that's when you know that's when they they pounce. Uh, hey Scott, I'm wondering about SPACs and the popularity of them these days. Have they peaked at least in this cycle? It seems like they've peaked. Obviously, the new SPACs being listed have started to slow considerably, um, and you know there's something like 480. SPACs in the market right now with about $1.3 billion wow. worth of capital okay. chasing deals. Uh, I don't know about you, but that seems like a lot of competition for private companies. Yeah. 
uh, I would say, you know, I'd be less inclined to invest uh, now than I would a uh, year or two ago. Well, everybody go check out Scott's story. It's available in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Read it now on the Bloomberg or at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week. Also joining us, Joel Webber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it is the worst performing stock in the Dow right now. Home Depot down by 4.37%. Joining us now is Ken Leon, a Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Ken, Home Depot reported earnings this morning. Same store sales, they rose 4.5%, but that missed expectations of 5.6%. Is that the main reason for the sell-off? We think it is. It also is late summer doldrums with concerns that maybe um, the peak peak spending is over for home improvement. Hmm. Uh, yet industry forecasts um, could look for eight and a half percent growth into next year. Uh, still significant home improvement spending. The numbers just didn't all tee up, as you noted, with same store sales. Yet it was a record quarter. For sales of $41.1 billion. and there were some slowdowns in different parts of the country. Um, they didn't fire on all cylinders in terms of having strong growth across products or geography. Still, it was a very good quarter, and I think the real debate here is this. Uh, we've reached, did we reach a cyclical peak? And even consumers with cash are spending elsewhere, perhaps leisure or post-pandemic. We have a multi-year secular trend where households want to spend more money upgrading their home. We did see that with the pro segment, that's contractors showing strong performance uh, in the quarter reported from Home Depot and we'll probably see that from Lowe's tomorrow as well. Well, the consumer discretionary sector in the S&P 500 is the worst performer by far right now, down 2.46%. With this, plus with the retail sales miss that we saw at 8.30 a.m. this morning, we're seeing companies, other companies decline as well. Lowe's, which reports earnings tomorrow, is down. Uh, we're also seeing Target, Best Buy, and more lower. Are these companies all lower because of Home Depot's earnings? Or are they lower because of the retail sales numbers? Is it a little bit of both? It's probably a little bit of both. But then when you look at the macro indicators, uh, household strong. I mean, we're, we're at record savings. A lot of that built up during pandemic. Additionally, employment and income growth is rising. The, the real resistance, of course, is inflation and whether that's having an, an impact on either consumer confidence levels or actual costs rising. Um, so that's, that's hopefully transient. And then the other issue is those that are coming off of subsidies from, from the federal government mm. getting back to work, hopefully. You know, the Delta variant, I think, kind of is the broad worry across all these different indicators. Well, speaking of the Delta variant, a hot headline just crossing the Bloomberg right now, the United States to extend a travel mask mandate through mid-January. This, according to Reuters. Ken, I want to get your thoughts on on the Delta variant and the concerns that uh, we are seeing play out in the market. We're hearing from companies. The big theme that that we're hearing from executives right now is is uncertainty. How, how are you seeing that play out in earnings right now? 
Earnings are very strong. We're seeing beats on both revenue and earnings for for most of the major companies. And, um, you know, I, I just think in terms of their visibility for the second half of this year, you know, the, the equity markets always need some wall of worry, especially when it's in a bull market. And we're getting it now. We haven't really even seen uh, a major pullback, and that's under 10% or a correction, which would be uh, greater than 10%. So all this in some ways is good for the equity markets, uh, but these are really um, what I would say to be healthy healthy worries about where we are in the economy and certainly where we can be in the next 12 months. I, again, I want to point out, because yeah. the story was on Home Depot, that home remodeling, uh, the forecast from the Harvard Joint Housing Center is 8.4%. That's increasing significantly compared to the last few years. So I, I would disagree that uh, we might, that the consumer still has money to spend or invest in their home. Uh, it's not like they're borrowing from the future, in our view. We haven't seen that yet. And, and that was always the big concern going back to this conversation maybe 12 months ago. I'm, I'm wondering about the 11% gain in average purchase price at Home Depot, but the fact that overall transactions fell 5.8%. Mm-hmm. So the tickets were, were higher, but the overall number of transactions were lower. Yeah, and, and what they didn't break down is there's two segments. The pro segment, which is the higher tickets per spend above 1,000, um, and above 1,000 tickets were up 50% year over year. But the volume of a number of transactions was down, which would be you and I going on the weekend to Home Depot for something that we're doing in the house or the backyard. Ken, just in the last 30 seconds that we have with you, you have a buy recommendation on Home Depot uh, with a 12-month price target of $350. How does it get there? Get there because Home Depot executes well. There's tremendous return of capital to investors in terms of dividends and buyback. When you look at your own portfolio, large cap portfolio, you look at the consumer sector, Home Depot is a mega cap stock stock that rarely, rarely disappoints. So we would stay the course, and that's why we have to buy. All right. Well, the earnings fund continues after the closing bell, and also tomorrow morning with Lowe's reporting. Shares of Lowe's are also down in sympathy, more than 5.6%. Ken Leon, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone from New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Well, we are just over 10 minutes away from the market close on this Tuesday, August 17th. Stocks broadly lower. The Dow down close to one percentage point. The S&P 500 lower by nine-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq, though, down more than 1.1 percent. Let's get right into it with Charlie Massimo, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group, also the founder of Autism Communities, joining us on the phone from Long Island, New York. Charlie, really great to have you on the show, especially on a day like today when, you know, in the context of what we've seen over the last few weeks, a rare day of, uh, I don't want to use the term sell-off because it's not so uh, in the context of what we've seen in recent weeks, it's not much of a decline, but still uh, a relative rarity with uh, what we've seen over the last few weeks. Yeah, well, certainly. Thanks for having me, Tim. I think we're kind of like at the perfect storm for a, what is a normal 10 to 13% pullback Hmm. when you think about all the uncertainty we have in the market with China, Afghanistan. Is the Fed going to change their stance? Aren't they going to change their stance? Is inflation coming in? They have a lot of uncertainty, plus where you consider how far we've come from a year and a half ago. You know, this this is probably a normal pullback that's, you never want to say it's welcomed, but I think it's somewhat due. Why do you say it's somewhat due? Just because the uncertainty that we've seen that you mentioned when it comes to the Delta variant, when it comes to what the Fed is going to be doing, although many people would argue that the Fed is telegraphing very clearly what it plans to do. Uh, And what we're seeing with the spread of Delta and with Afghanistan, you're, you're saying that a pullback like this is warranted? Yeah, it's somewhat warranted when you think about, again, how lofty we've become um, over the last 18 months. And you look at some valuations, especially on the tech side, where profit-taking, you know, again, happens to be normal when there's a lot of uncertainty in the markets. When you look at the huge profits that some people may be sitting on their books with, and I guess, you know, and the closer we get to year-end, although, you know, we're still not in the fourth quarter, but the closer we get to year-end, you're probably going to see more profit-taking by large, you know, fund managers and hedge funds to lock in those profits. Do you anticipate that we will see some sort of larger gain in, uh, before the end of the year? You know, I think when you, yeah, I think this is a short-term, as I say, normal pullback, and, and, and investors should be ready to buy, because when you really pull back the layers, and and you consider that American households are probably more liquid than they've ever been in the last four decades, and and less money is going to service debt. So when you factor those in, there's more money to spend, there's more money to save. So over the longer term, that's certainly going to fuel the economy and and help the economy continue to go and the markets continue to go higher. So again, you welcome these at times you don't like them, but be prepared. Be prepared to buy because the longer term view is much more positive. Well, Charlie, I do wonder about how you how you perhaps change your mind or how your mind changes given the retail sales data that we saw today that significantly missed estimates, Home Depot missing on uh, same store sales and that concern being, wait a second, did we reach peak spending? Is this some sort of pullback happening right now? Does that change your story at all? Again, not really. I think what, I think what every investor does, and sometimes it just sounds like we're broken records, but I think what yeah. you need to look at as an investor, you know, you can never become too complacent. And one of the fears I do have um, from an individual investor standpoint, I think they have become a little complacent. Listen, we, we've been in a market with low inflation, low interest rates, and a raving bull market that when these downturns do happen, people panic, and they're not prepared for, for what's going to come in the future. So I think 
you have to take all this news in stride, look at the longer term picture, and always position yourself for your liquidity needs and for the needs that you have over the short and long term. And again, never get ahead of yourself in these markets. So again, digest this news, understand why it's happening, where it's coming from, then prepare yourself for the longer term. So I do wonder uh, what you would say to people who perhaps have cash on the sidelines waiting for an entry point, getting the news yesterday that the S&P 500 has risen 100 percent since the March of 2020 lows and said, wait a second, I missed out seriously on this rally. Yeah, investors always have that 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 thought of regret. Um, but again, depending on where you are in your life, and, and if you think, if, if you are in the camp that inflation is going to rise, which most people think, really the only way, one of the only ways to hedge inflation is to continue to stay invested. Because if you do stay out of the market and you do stay in cash and inflation continues to rise, again, you're just exchanging one risk for another, and that's the risk of potentially running out of money. So unless there's a real short-term need for that cash, I think the best place over the next, you know, three, four, five years is, is going to be in the market, especially to offset an increase in inflation. Charlie, do you think that inflation is here to stay? That's a great question. I, I have to rub my crystal ball off for that one. <laughs> well, um, go get it, because I want to yeah, yeah. know. <laughs> Um, but, but, but I do think, uh, uh, again, when you look at the factors out there, when you look at supply and demand, um, I do think we may have a short-term stint of uh, deflation mm. uh, because, again, I think eventually supply will catch up to demand or demand will weaken and we'll have an, you know, an influx of supply. So we may have a short-term deflation, but I think if I'm, if I'm going to guess where we may be you know, in a year or two from today, I definitely see inflation increasing. You said in some notes to our producer that a time like right now before a, a sell-off is a time to take a gut check and, and really position a portfolio for, for where you are in life, for your liquidity needs versus where you believe the, the markets are, are headed. How would you advise somebody? And look, we know that as a wealth manager, you're advising people at all different stages of their life. So somebody who is close to retirement is certainly somebody different than at the beginning of their career. Yeah, Tim, that's a, that's a really great question. It's one we have all the time. And, and as I kind of alluded to before, I think when complacency sits in, people's risk tolerance increases or they think they increase their risk tolerance until markets come down. There's probably not a day that goes by that a client doesn't ask, should I be buying cryptocurrency? Well, if you have <laughs> what do you say? for that kind of volatility, certainly. But if, if this is a long-term proposition and this is the money that you want to retire on, probably that kind of volatility isn't where you should be. So again, I think you really have to gauge your ability to accept risk, to understand what your liquidity needs, are and to really understand what a bad sequence of returns means and what i mean by that if you're a year or two from retirement and we have two bad years of the markets how does that impact the next 20 years of your life so understand what sequence of returns means and position your portfolio so that a couple of bad years is not going to ruin the next 20 years of your life well given where bond yields are right now uh, i wonder if how you think a, a fixed income serves a purpose in somebody's portfolio Another great question, and, and, and I, I feel for investors that are trying to reduce risk by buying fixed income. I think we're in an environment now that, again, the greatest long-term hedge are the dividends of great-paying stocks. And, 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 and again, when you think about you – know, everybody talks about inflation. Yes, it's going to come. But when you look at the CPI over the past 50 years, you know, it's only up about one and a half times. 
where the S&P is up 40 times. Mm. So again, the greatest hedge against all of this is just staying fully invested in really a good, you know, diversified portfolio. Fixed income, again, fixed income is there if you need short-term liquidity, but necessarily not to offset the impact of inflation and the impact of, of your liquidity needs. Charlie Massimo, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group, also the founder of Autism Communities, joining us on the phone from Long Island, New York. Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.